Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video. It was the night right before the Apollo 1 fire. Thursday, January 26th, 1967. The next evening, television sets would carry reports of how the capsule went up in flames. But tonight, on the eve of that tragedy, at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, a new episode of Star Trek was about to premiere on NBC. It was the show's first season, and the episode that aired that night was wild, almost eerie. Captain's log, stardate 3113.2. In it, the Starship Enterprise, a spacecraft exploring the galaxy in the future, it accidentally travels back in time to Earth in the late 1960s, just days before Americans are about to go to the moon. The breakaway sent us plunging through space, out of control, to stop here, wherever we are. The Earthlings think they're so advanced, but from the perspective of the Enterprise crew, their 1960s technology and also their social views seemed embarrassingly backwards. An Air Force captain from the 60s is mistakenly beamed aboard the Enterprise. Welcome aboard the Enterprise. And, And he can't believe the diversity of the spaceship's crew. There are women. A woman? Crew. There are people who aren't white. They don't even have nationalities. This accidental visitor comes off as so foolish for being surprised that this is what the future looks like. So surprised that there could be a group of fellow beings all working together. Cancel red alert, but maintain increased security. I sir. All decks cancel red alert. Maintain increased security. In one of the last scenes, he gets to see his own tiny blue planet out the window of the Starship Enterprise. It's a view of Earth that no humans had yet ever experienced. Never thought I'd make it into space. The episode was called Tomorrow is Yesterday. And I suppose that was the question at the heart of it. Will tomorrow be the same as yesterday? Can we ever hope to escape the human failings of planet Earth? In the dark of this January Thursday night in 1967, the opening words of that new Star Trek episode echoed across living rooms. Space. The final frontier. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Moonrise. It is true that a house divided against itself by the spirit of faction, of party, of legion, of religion, of race, is a house that cannot stand. I certainly wish we could... uh show you the earth. It's a beautiful, beautiful view with a predominantly blue background and uh, just huge covers of the white clouds. 
Imagine living on this planet before we had any image of what Earth looked like from a distance. Many of you did experience that. It was only a little more than 50 years ago when we captured the very first pictures of this brilliant blue globe, our blue globe, floating there in the absolute blackness of the universe. That photograph changed our understanding of ourselves. The vastness of it actually made us look inward. We could suddenly see more clearly what it meant to be alive on this earth. How life was sublime and fragile, wonderful and flawed. Even before that photograph was taken in the late 1960s, we were already going through a reckoning and self-examination. Humanity had been through wars and nuclear standoffs that threatened to destroy the entire planet, but it's as if we finally stopped, looked at ourselves from a distance, and asked, what are we doing? Who have we become? Everyone, in one way or another, was confronting that question, going through that reckoning, including NASA, the very people leading us off this Earth. The Apollo 1 fire that killed three astronauts in January 1967 devastated NASA and threw the future of the moon program into question. It threw the future itself into question. Upcoming spaceflights were indefinitely suspended, and progress all but ground to a halt. NASA Administrator Jim Webb offered to resign over it, but President Lyndon Johnson said he wouldn't accept Webb's resignation. He wanted Webb to stay on. He needed him to get the Apollo program back up and running. And Webb actually convinces Johnson, this is really interesting, the only people that are really capable of investigating what happened are NASA, because we're the only ones who really understand it. This is NASA's chief historian, Bill Barry. Right, this, is, you know, this is the kind of thing that wouldn't, wouldn't happen today. But Webb went in there and said, you know, if you really want us to get to the moon, you know, let NASA investigate its own accident. We promise you we'll... We'll find out what happened, because we want to know, too. Um, and, and Johnson trusted him and, and let him run. NASA investigators continue their probe of the tragic flash fire that killed Apollo astronauts Grissom, White, and Shepard. The blackened shell of their capsule may still hold the clue to the cause of the swiftly spreading flames. NASA organized a review board that spent two months investigating the Apollo 1 tragedy and drawing up a report. That was followed by congressional testimonies. I was going over to testify before Congress on the result of the investigation. This is from an oral history of astronaut Frank Borman, who was part of the Apollo 1 fire review board. I wrote over with Mr. Webb, Jim Webb, who was the administrator of NASA. And I never will forget, he said, look, I don't want you to do anything to try to protect me or to try to protect NASA. The American people have a right to know exactly the unvarnished truth, and you tell them. That impressed me. I was going to do it anyway, but, but 
Here was the man. You know, I just don't think that happens today. The Senate published its own report then nearly a year after the accident in January 1968, and it concluded there had been preventable safety hazards. Jim Webb was still leading NASA through all of this. Webb was the guy who took all the slings and arrows uh, from Congress, from the press, from the public about the Apollo 1 fire. Um, And that, that took its toll on Webb and eventually on Johnson and on their relationship. During this time, support for the Apollo program had started to decline, both from the American public and from the U.S. Congress. The country was asking itself and asking President Johnson, why are we doing this? First, there was the budgetary support. Thanks to Johnson's efforts, funding for the Apollo program had ticked up to nearly $3 billion a year for a while. But in 1967, it started to go down and kept dropping. There was certainly pressure on, on the White House about Apollo uh, and, and the entire executive branch because, you know, the Congress was losing interest and concerned about the expense and, and cutting the budget as time went on. Uh, so it was, it was getting more and more difficult to execute it. Meanwhile, public confidence, or I guess you'd call it emotional support for the Moon program, was lackluster too. Opinion polls consistently showed that the Apollo program had less than a 50% approval rating among Americans. 50%. Many citizens could identify a host of other things that they thought deserved to be higher priorities than flying to the Moon. Civil rights, gender equality, addressing poverty, the national debt, and of course, the Vietnam War. Many men on both sides of the struggle will be lost. Armies on both sides will take new casualties. And the war will go on. The story of Apollo happens in the midst of a decade that is full of some of the most tumultuous times that um, had been seen in the 20th century since the Second World War. This is Margaret Weidekamp, a historian with the National Air and Space Museum. So Johnson's personal commitment to spaceflight then starts to butt up against some very, for him, unpleasant political realities of how poorly the Vietnam War is going, how much he's having to deal with international relations in a Cold War context, not only around Vietnam, but around the world. And then the real pressure on him that is created by hundreds and then thousands of young people who are beginning to protest U.S. policies. Central Park is the starting point for the parade to the U.N. building. The estimated 125,000 Manhattan marchers include students, housewives, beatnik poets, doctors, businessmen, teachers, priests, and nuns. Makeup and costumes were designed. And so Johnson is trying to navigate all of those things at the same time. So there's ways in which the space community is focused and dedicated to a technological project 
that is not necessarily in relationship or in dialogue with so many of these social, cultural, political changes that are happening um, that are spreading across the United States like wildfire in the 1960s. NASA had to face this reckoning, too. Technologically, of course, the moon mission represented progress and the future. But culturally, NASA was stuck in the past. Throughout the 60s, it was increasingly forced to confront the fact that its astronaut corps was all white men. There's a whole long history to how NASA's astronauts were initially selected They were pulled from the military's jet test pilot programs. But an unintended consequence of that decision process was that it excluded African Americans, it excluded Asian Americans, and excluded women. It is because of the history of how that test bed was put together is a rather exclusive group that ends up with a homogenous group of astronauts. So from the earliest days of the space program, NASA really went out of its way to portray its astronauts as obviously male, um, but also uh, quite white. This is Neil Maher, author of Apollo in the Age of Aquarius. Um, And NASA really relies on that cultural symbol throughout the early years of the the space program. Um, It signs a contract with Life magazine that has um, exclusive rights to report on the astronauts and their families. Um, NASA had um, editing permission for those stories. And if you look at those stories, in almost every one of them, they're portrayed as family men, hardworking, they go to church on Sundays. It's a very normative narrative. And yet NASA was supposed to be, in part at least, a tool for some of the social and economic progress that Johnson had hoped to bring about during his presidency. He signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964 that banned discrimination based on things like race and gender, and he followed that up with an executive order requiring equal employment opportunities in the federal government. There's actually an old training video that Werner von Braun made for the Marshall Space Flight Center, where he talks about the importance of embracing diversity at NASA. Ironic, given his own past in Germany. Equal employment opportunity in the federal government is the cornerstone of our federal merit system. It can be traced back almost 80 years to the Civil Service Act itself. If we are to extend man's boundary to the outer reaches of the universe, it is imperative that we also resolve man's relationship with man on this earth. Still... Despite some efforts to recruit a more diverse workforce, only about 3% of NASA employees during the Apollo era were black, and less than 5% were women. As NASA went through its own self-examination in the 60s, so did the science fiction genre. Now that space travel was real and a moon landing seemed imminent, What was science fiction's purpose? What stories should it tell? What new visions should it put into the American mind? 
By the end of the decade, there are two major contributions that really put forward radical new visions of what it could look like to go into space, and those are Star Trek on television from 1966 to 1969, and then Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which comes out in 1968. And so Kubrick really worked with uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke to develop this story, which he intended to be an epic form of storytelling that would really use science fiction as a way to tell a deeply allegorical story about humanity and what humanity could be, our evolution as a species. The movie painted a portrait of humans developing technology that eventually worked against them. And he's creating that vision at the same time that NASA is actually working on what is going to be the actual Apollo program and the um, moon landings. And on television, then, Gene Roddenberry in 1966 creates Star Trek. And what he's doing with that, the way that that really looks futuristic, is by having an integrated cast that includes an Asian-American man at the helm driving the ship. Sir, our speed is increasing. An African-American woman who is the spokesperson for the crew and sitting equally with the crew as a part of the cast. Mr. Spock, are you all right? Yes, I believe no permanent damage was done. What happened? Having a Russian join the cast in the second season is really path-breaking at the time. Having someone like Leonard Nimoy playing an alien who is not the other, not the enemy, but a part of the cast is a kind of radical reconception of the way that science fiction can be used to tell a new set of stories. And so Roddenberry really picks up from some of the social change happening in the 1960s and tries to create a science fiction program that would then grapple with these contemporary social issues, but by setting them in a space context, allow us to look at them with fresh eyes. That's the interesting thing. As the promise and tragedy of the Apollo program played out on the actual news around the country in the late 1960s, science fiction had to re-examine its purpose. It wasn't enough for it to paint exciting technical images of future space travel. You could find those in the newspaper. Science fiction now had to reflect something back to us about our current human condition. So what we find in the 60s is a wave of science fiction storytelling that embodied a new era's hopes and fears, and because of that, pointed us toward a different sort of future. These weren't just stories of flying through space, or aliens landing on Earth, or even a nuclear fallout. These were stories about alternative political realities about the mental toll of perpetual war, about whether social constructs would carry over to life on different planets, or what the relationships would look like between humans and machines. In the 60s, you get books like Frank Herbert's Dune, 
Philip K. Dix, The Man in the High Castle, and Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. She was the first woman to win the prestigious Nebula and Hugo Sci-Fi Awards, and that book she wrote was about the social and political dynamics on a planet where everyone is androgynous or gender-fluid. Then also at the end of the decade, there was Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. It's a book about a man who time travels between different chapters of his life, returning often to the pain and the horror of war. War was on the minds of science fiction writers at the time. It was also on the shoulders of President Johnson in the late 1960s. U.S. involvement in the fighting in Vietnam dated all the way back to Harry Truman's presidency. By the eve of President Kennedy's assassination in 63, there were about 16,000 U.S. military personnel over there. But Johnson was the first president to send American ground troops to Vietnam. And by 1968, there were more than 500,000 U.S. troops there. As Johnson wrestled with both the Vietnam War and the future of the stalled Apollo program, the two became intertwined. NASA was originally spun off from the military so it could exclusively focus on peaceful scientific pursuits. But under Johnson, NASA started to help out the Defense Department. In the late 1960s when Vietnam was you know, in full swing, um, the U.S. military comes to NASA and asks, you know, what can you do for us? What technology that you have for, for space exploration might be useful for us uh, in the Vietnam War? And the head of NASA immediately agrees to help. Jim Webb approved the creation of the NASA Limited Warfare Committee. By 1967, NASA had dedicated $4 million to the program and had reassigned about 100 of its engineers to trying to figure out how to retool space technology for use in Vietnam. And they developed a, a, a several different um, technologies, an ambush detector, a mortar counter, and a small beacon for locating downed fighter pilots. Um, but of course, the most important one was the electronic battlefield, also known as Project Igloo White. Igloo White was a covert electronic warfare project, meaning it captured data on the battlefield to help the U.S. military automate its attacks. And what NASA did was it took uh, many of its engineers and they, they took the seismometers that were used to measure if there was any um, lunar activity, and, and they retooled them, um, and they, they dropped them from planes, thousands of them from planes along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And as the communists moved across the, the trail, these sensors would record hits, and that data was sent to an enormous IBM computer um, that was located in Thailand. It was the same IBM computer that was used at the Johnson Space Center to um, oversee the Apollo mission. That computer, within a matter of minutes, took the data and converted it into um, location um, sites. And then they would relay that information to the nearest airbase that would then put pilots in planes. The planes would take off and they would bomb the Ho Chi Minh Trail where those hits had occurred. The ties between rockets and missiles, space and war, 
were still knotted together. When NASA initially began to help the military, it was open about um, some of the projects that it was working on because it felt that this would give it some public um, support. Um, but as the protests against the war increased, NASA began to realize that this work was hurting their popularity. Um, so it changed its internal memorandum to say that it would allow the public to know that it was working with the military, but it would not say how. In 1968, the United States seemed to be falling apart. Actually, not falling apart. Violently tearing apart. The casualties in Vietnam were headlining the news every single night. And Johnson couldn't seem to pull the U.S. out of that quagmire. Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother had decided to run for president thinking he could do a better job than Johnson had. And then he was assassinated. Martin Luther King was assassinated too. And race riots filled American streets. What had Lyndon Johnson done wrong? What had his presidency become? He had pushed for civil rights bills. He had tried to stop the violence in Vietnam. He had poured money into the Apollo program. But everything Johnson had hoped to achieve was slipping through his hands. Johnson had always been so adept at manipulating political situations and people, but he had lost control of his presidency and the country. He finally had to look himself in the mirror and admit he should give up the White House. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Meaning these would be his last few months in office. NASA Administrator Jim Webb went over to the White House on September 16, 1968, to meet with Johnson. They had already decided Webb would leave his position at NASA the same time Johnson left office. Over the years, Webb did just about anything and everything President Johnson had asked him for. For your old friend, for your old friend, dear old friend. Help out his military guys in Vietnam. I'll do that. How about this congressman who wants NASA research grants to go to his district? It'll be difficult, but it is, is doable through a reprogramming of some funds. How about that senator who wants a NASA facility in his state? I'd do anything in the world you tell me to do. I, I, I... Now it was the fall of 1968. The investigation and the congressional hearings about the Apollo 1 fire had wrapped up. And NASA was ready to start sending Apollo astronauts on flights again. Webb was sitting there in the Oval Office, talking to Johnson, who was behind the presidential desk. NASA's dwindling budget was still an issue. Who knew when a moon landing would happen anymore, or if it would happen anymore. Hopefully this upcoming Apollo launch would get them back on track. Johnson was not in the mood. Webb mentioned that he was turning 62 in a few weeks. 
and Johnson said, You know what? Why don't you leave even sooner? Let's make it effective as of your birthday in a couple weeks. I think Johnson was just frustrated to a great extent. And I think he sort of thought that that sort of cleaned up the whole, you know, that puts Apollo 1 behind us. That was not what Webb had meant. That would mean he'd leave NASA right before Apollo 7 would finally launch. It would be the first mission since Apollo 1 to have a crew aboard, and it would be a crucial step to putting us back on course to the moon. Webb had planned to stay these last few months to see through as many of the Apollo launches as possible, to stick with Johnson through the last day of his presidency. But nope. And he was out of a job like that. As of October 7th, 1968, his 62nd birthday, Jim Webb packed up his office at NASA headquarters. He had been there since Kennedy announced the Apollo program. Since Johnson had come to him asking what NASA could do for President Kennedy. He'd been there through all of it. And now he had to walk away. All he could do was say goodbye to his colleagues and bid everyone working on the mission to the moon good luck. After Soviet rocket designer Sergei Korolev's death, the Russian moon program was ravaged by even more tragedies. A cosmonaut named Vladimir Komarov died, actually shortly after the Apollo 1 fire, when parachutes failed on his spaceship and his capsule crashed into Earth on re-entry. The Soviet program then had another setback in the spring of 1968, when Yuri Gagarin, the celebrity cosmonaut who had been the first person ever to go into space, died as well. Gagarin was flying a jet when he and his trainer went into a tailspin and plummeted. He had been back in flight training to prepare for the Soviet's lunar mission. And Gagarin passing has a huge morale, negative morale effect in 1968. Um, and so they're kind of, they're really reeling. And their, their first few missions, they're much less ambitious than, than they intended. 1966 into 1968 had been a difficult stretch for the U.S. and the Soviet programs. But around the same time, both countries' prospects started looking better. First, in September, the Soviet Union launched a probe that went around the moon and returned to Earth. Then, in October, the United States launched Apollo 7. It was just a few days after Jim Webb stepped down as NASA administrator, and the Apollo 7 mission sent three men into orbit around the Earth for 11 days. Apollo 7 was called 101% successful. And the next manned Apollo flight can be undertaken with confidence that our brand new spacecraft is, as Commander Walter Schirra reported, a magnificent flying machine. Well... Then in November, the Soviet Union volleyed back and launched another uncrewed probe around the moon and back to Earth. Now the U.S. government started worrying. We were getting intelligence reports that the Soviets were planning on putting a crew around the moon and, and they might beat us to it. The leaders at NASA, including rocket designer and Marshall Space Flight Director Werner von Braun, made a decision. 
they decided to scrap the idea that their next Apollo mission, Apollo 8, should be another Earth orbit mission. They had been working on a lunar module, which was the part that could detach and land on the surface of the moon, but that wasn't ready yet. What was ready was Werner von Braun's massive Saturn V rocket. It weighed more than 6 million pounds, and at launch it had more power than 85 Hoover dams. No humans had ever launched with it before, but if it worked, they figured that it should be ready now to send a crew all the way to the moon. NASA decided, let's go for it. Instead of more practice runs orbiting Earth, let's launch a crew of three astronauts to the moon. They won't be able to land on it, but they will be able to circle it and then return to Earth. That would technically make Americans the very first people to go to the moon. The dream of Jules Verne and Konstantin Tsiolkovsky and Robert Goddard and Sergei Korolev and Robert Heinlein and Werner von Braun and Lyndon Johnson was about to come true. December 21st, 1968, was the winter solstice, the darkest day of the year. President Johnson was in the Bethesda Naval Hospital with the flu. But he got up in the morning darkness to watch the launch of Apollo 8 on television screens in his hospital room. There was a countdown clock on the TV that showed the time until liftoff. Bill Anders, Frank Borman, and Jim Lovell were the astronauts who rode the elevator up the scaffolding next to the 363-foot-high Saturn V rocket. On the day of the launch, before light, it was still dark when the three of us went up to the gantry. This is Jim Lovell's recollection years later. No one else was around up there in the darkness except for a couple assistants to help them on the platform. My two companions were the first to go into the spacecraft. We're at the gantry, some 330 feet tall. There's a bridge across there. Astronaut Jim Lovell remaining in the elevator with one suit technician. Jim sits in a chair in the elevator while his two fellow pilots go aboard the spacecraft. I was left alone, fully suited up uh, and breathing pure oxygen. And I looked at the night and I saw these lights come down. They were the lights from the press corps, far below. And then I looked down and I saw the ground, and I looked at the press corps and I said, these people are really serious. We're going to go to the moon. And you know, it suddenly dawned on me that this was not another Earth orbital flight. This was the accumulation of the training we had done and the decisions we had made that unless something in the the next couple hours happened, This spacecraft and this rocket are going to take off, and we're headed for the moon. Lovell crossed the bridge, ducked into the command module, and they closed the hatch. Twenty seconds, all aspects. We are still go at this time. T minus 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. 
The engines are on. Four, three, two, one, zero. through the vast darkness of space to get to the moon. They looped around it several times, and on the fourth orbit, Anders spotted it out the small window of their module. Oh, God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, that's pretty. Hand me a roll of color quick, Oh, man, that's great. Earthrise, the blue planet with its white swirls of clouds, was rising through the black void beyond the moon. Home. They were the first humans ever to have this view of our entire planet. There was a video camera in the module, and it had a scratchy feed back down to Earth. The three astronauts were supposed to transmit a broadcast. Before their flight, Frank Borman had been put in charge of figuring out what they should say, but he had struggled with it. A staffer in Johnson's administration named Joseph Layton had been asked to help out, but he was struggling with it too. The idea eventually came from Joseph Layton's wife, Christine at 3 a.m. one night before the launch. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. Have them read the first lines of Genesis. And the Earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. As they circled the moon, they broadcast back down to one billion human beings who were listening to them from planet Earth. They took turns. First Anders, then Lovell, then Borman. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a ferment in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the ferment, and divided the waters which were under the ferment the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament, and the evening and the morning was the second day. It was now December 24th, 1968, Christmas Eve. It had been a violent, cruel year. 
the earth was in flames. But from up here, everything was so quiet and peaceful. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called these things. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. That was the first flight of humans to the moon. It was also the last flight while Johnson was president. He called the wives of the Apollo 8 astronauts while they were still in space, and he said, When Sputnik came over the ranch uh, many, many years ago, we had dreams of something like this, but uh, we never thought it could be so perfect. A month later, under the weight of the Vietnam War, and civil rights protests, and a country torn apart, Johnson left the Oval Office. For more than a decade, his career, his life, had been interwoven with the promise of space travel. It had been a tool he used in so many ways. It didn't grant every one of Johnson's political wishes, but it had unintentionally done something greater— it let us take a look at ourselves. Astronaut Bill Anders, who took that Earthrise photograph, later said, We came all this way to explore the moon, and the most important thing is that we discovered the Earth. In many ways, this could be the end of our story. Apollo 8 largely fulfilled the vision put forward decades, even centuries earlier, of humans flying to the moon. And yet, the American mythology around the space race compels us to think that the story kept going, that we hadn't quite reached the culmination of the moon tale. Lyndon Johnson was out as president, Richard Nixon was in, Jim Webb was out as NASA director, Thomas Paine was in, and still the United States wrestled with deep problems and divisions. And still, it charged forward to Apollo 11. Half a year later, it was almost time. It was July 15th, 1969. Tomorrow, a rocket would take off once again for the moon, this time to touch down on it. Families from across the country camped out along the white sand beaches of Cape Canaveral to grab prime viewing spots for liftoff the next morning. The sky over Cape Canaveral was silver, as if they were inside one big cloud. It was 24 hours until liftoff. The Saturn V rocket 
36 stories tall with its towering white and black stripes, stood there in the distance, waiting for tomorrow. But many people were sick of waiting, not for the launch itself, but for a better country that the spacecraft would launch from. On the outskirts of the rocket complex came the sounds of a protest. The cape was covered in mist. A man named Ralph Abernathy led a large group of black families in song, and they walked toward the center of a field near the Kennedy Space Center. He had been Martin Luther King Jr.'s right-hand man, and a year had passed since that assassination. Why had we spent all this money and effort to prepare to send three men to the moon tomorrow when we had so many problems still to address right here on Earth? Thomas Paine, now the head of NASA, met Ralph Abernathy and the protesters in the middle of the wet field. Abernathy greeted him. And Abernathy spoke first and he said, you know, we're not here to protest the Apollo 11 launch. It's an amazing feat, and we're very proud of America for having accomplished this. But we are here to protest what he called the nation's distorted sense of national priorities. All this money being spent to get to the moon, and so little money being spent on problems affecting the people that I have here with me, these poor African-American families. And he, he sort of asked Thomas Paine, he turned right to him, and he said, I'm asking you, you and your scientists to turn around your your technology and, and bring it back down to Earth to try to solve some of our problems that we're facing here on Earth. The new NASA administrator was facing Abernathy, facing, really, the country. And he said, If I could not push that button tomorrow, and if we knew that that money would then go to your problems, I wouldn't push the button. But this was about more than a particular rocket launch. You know, I think that, you know, th th this cultural battle that was going on was really a battle over the future of the country and what the country meant. Abernathy said, As our brave, courageous heroes make their way to the moon tomorrow, may they never forget their suffering brothers and sisters down here. May they think about us tomorrow and pray for us, as we will be praying for them. Tomorrow. Tomorrow was the day. On the next episode of Moonrise. Our journey reaches its end. Thank you so much for listening to the Moonrise podcast. If you want to hear and read and watch more from the Washington Post, there's a special subscription discount for Moonrise listeners. You can just go to WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise offer. Moonrise is a Washington Post audio podcast. 
Very many thanks to producer Bishop Sand, project coordinator Allison Michaels, art designer Courtney Kahn, director of audio Jess Stahl, and the editing help of Carol Alderman. Our podcast launch event was hosted by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. The experts who appeared on this episode were Bill Barry, chief historian of NASA, Neil Maher, author of Apollo in the Age of Aquarius, and Margaret Weidekamp, chair of the Space History Department at the National Air and Space Museum and author of Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, America's First Women in Space Program. Archival audio in this episode is from Critical Past, C-SPAN, NASA, the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, and the original Star Trek TV series. I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise. Our next episode is the finale in our series. Stay tuned. Houston, are you ready to follow eight? Well, I'm clear, Apollo 8. And thank you for a very good show. We have a maneuver pad for you when you're ready to copy. Houston, Apollo 8. Apollo 8, read your lock clear. for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 